This morning, our text is going to be out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And I know most of us are probably familiar with this text. I'll be reading from the New King James Version, so it may read a little different than your translation, but basically, we'll see it says the same thing, just differently. Um, So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we read, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And if you would, join me with the short prayer. And we'll start. Lord, thank you again for this day. Thank you that you've brought us here together to be your people, to serve you, to serve one another, to serve this community. And we pray today that as we are beginning this Advent season, as Brennan was praying, that our minds, our hearts will be set upon you and upon Jesus whom you sent. And we thank you for your word and we ask now that you would... um, Help us to understand both the privilege and the responsibility of this precious gift that we have in these books we call the Bible. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1980. Now, some of you may not have remembered that far back, but it's been a while. 1980, and I was a young Christian. I had been a Christian about eight years at that point, and I was a part of a Christian rock band. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure you have all of our albums and all that sort of thing. But we were actually very busy at that time, traveling throughout the United States, playing concerts, evangelizing. And we also, from time to time, on several occasions, found ourselves traveling in Europe, primarily England, Scotland, Netherlands, Switzerland, uh, those sort of hard-pressed places to be. But on this occasion, we were in Scotland, Motherwell, Scotland. And uh, I'll let you in on something. Margo and I have an adopted name. It's the McWannabees because we love Scotland. And if it wasn't for our love for you folks, we would be out of here. We'd be living in Scotland. But you guys trump, I guess I shouldn't say trump Scotland. But anyway, um, we were in Scotland and... As we would do, we'd work with the local churches, and uh, during uh, the evening times, we would do worship music, much like we, we do here, as a, only as a full band. And back then, we were the first um, Christian rock band that did worship using, you know, this kind of stuff. And we got the nickname, the Electric Praise Band. <laughs> so it was always weird. But what we would do is we would play worship music during the services, And then during the day or on off nights, we would go out and we would play anywhere we had the opportunity to play. And in this time, we were out at a park in Motherwell, Scotland. And uh, it was a warm summer day in the month of August, which is really the only time you should go to to Scotland. Otherwise, you're going to get real cold. But we were out, and what we'd normally do is we'd play a song and then share our testimony or share about the gospel in between the songs. And we would, uh, at the end of the concert, we would go out and talk to people, and some of us would pack up, and some of us would share our testimony and share 
you know, from the Bible with, with uh, the young people who usually came because they liked the music, I guess. Um, and I remember uh, on this occasion, I was talking to a young group of people, um, 25, 30 kids. They all had spiked hair back then. And they were the real punks. Uh, not the kind of punks that we are here, but these, these were really hardcore, hard-pressed young people with an attitude. I, and this, you know, they used to put chains and pins through their nose and connect you know, cables from their ear to wherever. And, they, you know, and, of course, it was always fun because they always talked with the brog, brog, you know. And so I was talking to these, and I call them kids. I was all at the tender age of 28, and they were probably, you know, 19, 18, you know, early 20s. But I was talking to these kids about the gospel, and I was telling them, you know, about Jesus. And, and at that time, you know, we were expecting the Lord's return any time. And I guess we probably ought to live that way anyway, right? Yeah, because <laughs> he could come today. That'd be great. Um, but I was talking to them about the gospel, and they were intently, intently listening to me. And, of course, they were so intent, I was wondering, do they like me, or are they going to kill me? You know, because they're just staring at me, and uh, finally this one young guy with the biggest spikes and the, the most chains raised his hand, and I thought, okay, here it comes. <laughs> and I said, yes, and he said, I have a question, when he was more like, I like question, and I said, well, what's your question? He says, he asked me, why is the Bible called the Bible? Now, that's a terrible brogue there, but he asked, why, did, why is the Bible called the Bible? And I looked at him, and what seemed to be an hour later, I'm looking at the rest of them, they're all just staring at me. And I'm thinking, why is the Bible called the Bible? Why is, why is the Bible called the Bible? Stan, why is the Bible called the Bible? You've been here, you've been a Christian eight years, you can, you can quote memory verses, and you can quote your pastor, and you can tell people what books you've read. Why is the Bible called the Bible? Yeah, and they were looking at me, just like you. Why is the Bible called the Bible? And I answered them honestly. I said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why the Bible's called the Bible. And this young man said something so profound to me. He said, well, if you don't know why the Bible's called the Bible, why should we believe anything you have to say about the Bible? And you know what they did? They didn't jump me or beat me up. They all turned around and walked away. And I'm standing there with my Bible, and I'm watching these kids walk away, and I lost them. And that was a profound experience for me. And the rest of the time, I kept thinking. Every time we'd go and play and talk in church, I was thinking, why is the Bible called the Bible? So I started asking my friends who were with me, hey, do you guys know why the Bible's called the Bible? Uh, no, it doesn't matter. That's all head knowledge. Who cares? And I'm thinking, well, these kids cared, and now I care. And all the way home, you know, flying from uh, Gatwick, England, the airport there, to Los Angeles to go home to California, I couldn't sleep. I kept thinking, nobody knows why the Bible's called the Bible. I don't know. Why is the Bible? And I remember I came home and I told Margo, I said, she goes, how was the trip? And I said, well, it was great until I got asked the question why the Bible's called the Bible. (laughs) And I told her I felt like a big hypocrite. Here I am. I go to another country. I'm telling these young people, look, the problem is, you guys, you don't know the Bible. You need to know what the Bible says. And the Bible is God's word. And the Bible is inspired of God. And, you know, everything I believe today. But I felt like such a big hypocrite because 
I didn't know why the Bible was called the Bible. I had a crisis moment, if you will. So I did the next best thing. I enrolled at the local Bible college to learn why is the Bible called the Bible? Because I asked pastors. They didn't know. I asked elders. They didn't know. I didn't know. It seemed like none of us knew why the Bible's called the Bible, but we sure love the Bible and we sure honor the Bible and uphold it and it's precious. Why is the Bible called the Bible? So I went to school and uh, four years later, after I earned my degree in biblical studies, I finally learned why the Bible's called the Bible. Years later, I ended up teaching at a Bible college for several years, which I loved. Um, and I taught a class called Bibliology. Any of you know what that means? Big fancy term. It means the study of the Bible. How do you study the Bible? How we got the Bible? Where did the Bible come from? Because I finally knew why the Bible was called the Bible. And I remember one of my students, uh, his name was Harry. Um, I asked the class, I said, so who can tell me why the Bible is called the Bible? And again, you know, we have people have been in church for years and Harry raised his hand and goes, I can tell you why the Bible is called the Bible. It's an acronym. It's an acronym. What are you talking about, Harry? It's an acronym. He goes, yep, the Bible. Basic instructions before leaving earth. <laughs> and I thought, well, Harry, that's, that's a, that's a yeah, I, yeah, I can't really argue with you on that one. But that's not why the Bible's called the Bible, but that's good. And this morning I was thinking, you know, if I was going to give this message a, a title, it would have been something like the sufficiency of Scripture. Sounds very formal. But I thought, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it Harry's acronym. Why is the Bible called the Bible? Um, because it is basic instructions before leaving earth. And it's a really good handbook and guidebook for us to live by. Wouldn't you agree? I wonder how many of us would probably say, you know, if I'd followed the Bible when I said that, or if I followed the Bible before I did that, I probably wouldn't have had as much problems today as I have had in the past. Anybody experience that? I'm starting to feel like I'm back in Scotland. <laughs> so this morning, I want to talk about the Bible. And uh, the term Bible, what does it mean? Well, it comes from the Greek phrase, tabiblia. I'll spell it T-A. That's the first word. Second word is biblia, B-I-B-L-I-A. It's a Greek phrase. Sounds ominous, but it's real simple. It means the books. The Bible is called the Bible because it means the books. Which books? What books? How many, uh, how many books are there in the Bible? Anybody? 66. 66. That's right. How many in the Older Testament, as we say? 39. Good. Okay. You guys are smart. How many in the New Testament? 27. Well, I just want you to know, you just spoiled it for me because I was going to do some Bible math for you. I was going to say the way you remember that is three times nine equals what? 27. So you got 27 in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament, and that's Bible math, so we can all go home now, right? <laughs> so collectively, the books of the Bible are called Scripture. The writings is what that means. And the books that we have in our Bibles, the 66 books that we have, comprise the complete Word 
of God. So when we start reading our Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and we go all the way through to Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, we've read the entire word of God written in a book we call the Bible. But you notice Paul refers to the Bible, the scriptures, as the inspired word of God. The NIV translates that God breathed, which is probably the best translation for that term, theopnostos in the Greek. It means the Bible is God breathed. It's a book that originates from God through the writings of men. Now, one of the things I used to do in um, college is I'd always have the students to do this. I'm going to ask you to do it today as good, precious saints. I'd like you to not put your hand over your mouth, but you choose whichever hand you want, um, as long as it's your hand. Put it over in front of your face. Go ahead. You can do it. And I'd like you to repeat that word with me on the count of three, inspiration. Ready? One, two, three. Inspiration. Well, you guys are great. What did you experience when you said inspiration? You could feel it on your hand. So when the Bible t- speaks of being inspired of God, what it's talking about more than the mode of being written, it's talking about primarily the source of the Bible. Where did it come from? It came from God. And God, as he was guiding the writers of the New Testament and the Old Testament, when he was guiding these men, he directed them in the way they should write. So, in a sense, inspiration primarily means the Bible is from the very thought, the very will, the very being of God. It's supernatural. And yet God, in his superintendence, guided the writers to write in such a way that though they used their own abilities, their own style of writing, they used various genres of writing, different languages, uh, different abilities to write or even inabilities to write very well, God still guided them. It was uh, Peter who put it this way. I'll just read this for you. In Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 20 and 21, Peter says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, The Bible didn't come around because somebody thought they were going to sit down and write a great novel, okay? This was God's doing, not the writer's. But no uh, prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So when Moses, Jeremiah, Paul, Peter... Luke, as these men wrote, they wrote because they sensed that God had something for them to say. And yet, as they wrote in their own language about their own times, in their own situations, their own circumcision, circumcision, excuse me, well, that's in the Bible too, circumstances, there we go. As they wrote about these things, it was the Lord who guided them and, all right, Let's get it out. Let's laugh. Okay, there we go. Uh, thank you. Okay, that's it. So as he guided them, he, they wrote 
under his direction. And so today we have God's word here written in these books called the Bible. And because the Bible is divinely inspired, we believe as Christians, we believe it's both inerrant and infallible. What do we mean by inerrant? That it's without error, without mistake. Um, Now, that's a whole subject in itself because we could ask, well, how did the Bible come down to this? And why are there some differences in some Bibles and not in other Bibles? And, and those are all honest, good questions, but we've got really good, honest answers for all that. Um, but the Bible and what it, it addresses is inerrant, and it is also infallible. Infallible means it's going to do what God intended it to do. It's not going to make any mistakes. We can trust the Bible because it's God's word. And so we believe the Bible or the authors are uh, incredible or credible and the writings are reliable. And as a result, we believe the Bible to be true and trustworthy in all that it conveys. That's my conviction. I believe that if the Bible is addressing natural issues like geography or culture or history science, if you will, that when I read the Bible, I can trust what it says because it's God's word. It's inerrant. It's infallible. And it's inspired of God. I don't have to question it. But we also believe that it is true when it speaks to the supernatural. Uh, We used to go to a church years ago, and we had a guest pastor, uh, I'll leave him nameless and the denomination nameless, but he was talking about Mark's gospel where Jesus was casting out demons, and he was telling us that what was actually happening there, because he had his doctorate in psychology, was that uh, Jesus was actually dealing with personality types and mental illness. (laughs) And we thought, well, that's not what Mark says. It says it was demons. It wasn't schizophrenics. And uh, it's like, no, when the Bible talks about supernatural things, you can trust it. You know, are there demons? Are there angels? Does God heal supernaturally? Does God answer prayer? Does God bless when people come together? Those are all supernatural things that God does. And so when we look to the Bible, we can trust everything it says, all that it addresses, from the time of creation until the time of consummation when the Lord returns. The Bible is a sure word, as Peter said. But unfortunately, the Bible is often neglected by those of us who honor it the most. Have you ever thought about that? If somebody asked you tomorrow, so do you believe in the Bible? How many of you would say, well, kind of, maybe, I don't know, it doesn't matter. How many of you would say, of course I do. It's the word of God. And I know we all have that conviction. But how much do we spend time in the Bible, in the word of God? I was working a a job one time with criminal justice services. And our IT guy used to harass me because I was also the chaplain for the sheriff's department and the fire department. And I used to carry a briefcase because I'd have to go to court for court cases and go with the probation officers. 
And he knew I always had uh, this little Bible right here. I've had this Bible. I had to tape it up. But he knew this was in my briefcase, and I always set it on my desk in my cubicle. And one day he came over, and he sat down, and he said, why do you carry that Bible? Because you're a chaplain? I said, well, that's partly why. And he goes, well, you know, I don't know why you bother with it. It's full of contradictions. And I said, really, Mark, it's full of contradictions. And he said, yeah, you can't trust it. It's full of contradictions. I go, oh, well, that's interesting. And I pulled it out and I handed it to him. He said, show me one. He could not show me one contradiction. I said, well, that's okay. Let me show you one. I can give you definitely a contradiction here in the Bible. When the devil said, hath God said? And Eve said, yes, the Lord said. And then the devil contradicts the Lord and says, that's not true. You're not going to die. I said, now that's a contradiction, but that's the devil contradicting the word of God. I said, but I can't find any contradictions in the Bible. Can I find paradox? Oh, yeah. Do I find mysteries? Oh, yeah. Do I find some things that are hard to understand because it's translated from one language to the next, and sometimes I don't understand the writing style, and sometimes I'm just not very smart? Oh, yeah. But the Bible doesn't contradict reality. If anything, it clarifies reality for us. So, as I was saying, though... We have such a high regard for the Bible. Sometimes, and I look at myself here, I think, how much do I really honor the Bible? How important is it really to my life? You know, for instance, sometimes I find I'm just too busy to study the Bible. You ever find yourself too busy to study the Bible? You know, you got other commitments, right? Yeah. How about this? Well, I'd like to, but, you know, I've got some other interests in this week, I've got some other things I'd rather do. You know, Netflix is calling. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we're just too busy to study the Bible. One of our nemesis to the Christian faith is a, a man by the name of Bart Ehrman. You ever heard of Bart Ehrman? Brilliant man. Um, I, I like to listen to him lecture because he's so smart but he's an apostate he turned his back on god and his mission now is to convince young people at the university of chapel hill in north carolina that the bible is fraudulent the bible is not accurate but he's not out to undermine anybody's faith he says but he always points out in his lectures that he has all these young people who've grown up in church You pick a denomination, they've come from this church, and they can recite the Bible. But then he'll ask them, you know, what's been your favorite book this month? And, you know, they'll they'll say this, that, and the other. And and he'll ask them, well, how many of you you read the Bible? And they all put their hands up. And he goes, okay, how many of you have read the whole Bible all the way through? Now just a few hands. And he'll challenge him because, yeah, I don't understand. You have time to read this person's book about whatever it is, but you don't seem to have any time to read a book God's written. (laughs) You know, I take that personally. I'm challenged by that. I think, yeah, gosh, you know, thank you for slapping me in the face. Thank you for getting my attention. Yeah, the Bible really should have a high priority. Paul says... In 2 Timothy 
just a few verses back, he says this. He says to Timothy in verse 15, chapter 2, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Timothy, as a young pastor, and I take that as Stan as getting to be an older Christian. <laughs> I need to be diligent about God's word. You know, it should really be important to me because, after all, it's God's book. It should really have a high priority in my life as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, a grandfather, and now a great-grandfather. I always thought I was a good grandfather anyway. But anyway, uh, I should take it serious because when I look at the world around me, things going on today, there's a lot going on today, isn't there? How do I understand that in the light of prophecy? How do I understand that in the light of what God has told me as a Christian? You know, I can, I can go the political route. I can go the economical route. I can go all kinds of ways. But as a Christian, I probably ought to come here first and say, God, what do you say about this stuff? I should, that should be my first place to go. Paul tells Timothy to rightly divide. And I love that word because who knows what Paul did for a living besides being uh, a, an apostle. <laughs> he was a tent maker. So he was a tent maker. And uh, he told Timothy to rightly divide. The word literally means cut straight the word of truth. Now, I'm wondering if Paul, having trained Timothy, Timothy knowing what Paul's real, his daytime job was, if you will, Paul understood what it meant to take valuable, precious material. You know, I, I don't think camel hide or anything else like that was probably cheap. I think it was probably very costly. And if you're going to make a tent, you're going to want to cut those hides correctly, straight. It's where we get our word orthodox from, orthopraxy. We want to do the right thing. So, Timothy, when you sit down with the word of God, you need to know how to cut straight so it doesn't end all cattywampus, doesn't end up misaligning. So I think when we read what Paul says to Timothy, it says the word of God is inspired. And because it's God's word, Timothy, be responsible with it. Learn to cut through it straight. Learn to read it. Share it correctly. So why is the Bible essential to Christian faith and practice? Well, because, as I said, the Bible is divinely authentic and therefore authoritative. Ooh, that's a word we don't like. Authoritative. Well, yeah, I like to read the Bible, but I don't like it when it tells me what I should or shouldn't do. <laughs> but it's God's word. It's authoritative. And Paul says, because of that, it's profitable. That is, it's useful for the following reasons. A, it's useful for doctrine. Now, these days, we often hear people say, doctrine, oh, doctrine divides. Well, yeah, right from wrong, true from false, good from bad. Yeah, doctrine does divide. <laughs> it does. But the word doctrine simply means uh, it applies itself to what we believe. The Bible is the basis of Christian faith and practice. 
And it's the sure foundation of our Christian worldview. Now, when I say worldview, I mean the way we view the world, right? So when I look at the world around me and I look at what's going on, I should have a biblical basis for that. I should be able to say, you know, I understand what's happening here. That guy is acting that way because obviously he doesn't know the Lord. Or those people are acting that way because sin abounds in the heart of all people. And unless they know the gospel and come to believe in Christ and understand the grace of God and how God changes people, they're going to act that way because we act that way unless God is intervening in our life. I mean, that's what we learn from the Bible. So I need to be praying for those people because the, because the Bible tells me not only do I pray for those who I love, but I need to pray for those who hate me. I need to pray for those who are not only my family and my friends, but even my foes. Oh, yeah. So the Bible is good for doctrine. Um, Charles will appreciate this. The Bible is our epistemology. That's a good philosophical term, right, Charles? It's our epistemology. Now, what? Now, wait a minute. I know that. I know you're probably thinking, are you allowed to say that word in church? Yes. Epistemology. It's a word. I'll break it down for you. It's, it comes from couple different words put together. Epi, which means upon. It's a preposition. So when you think about something, you know, like my hands are up on the stand. Epi, and then stami means stasis, where you get the word something that's level, something that you would stand upon. And then ology is where we get the word from the Greek there, uh, logia, which means uh, we get our word logic from that. Reason And so epistemology means it's what we stand upon. And it's to think and talk about what do we stand upon. So when someone says, hey, I I got a question for you. I always think, well, I I may not have an answer, but I definitely have an opinion. I always have an opinion. But hopefully I know what I'm standing on when I'm making my comments to whatever that question may be. So when we talk about epistemology here in church... We started learning about that back in Sunday school. Anybody here grow up in Sunday school? Yeah. Remember, remember the song? How many of you remember the song? The B-I-B-L-E. I remember that one. There you go. Now that's the book for me. I what? I stand upon the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. That's awesome. That's profound. And that's what we teach our children. That was Sunday school. But now we're in big kids' school. The words have been changed. The words go like this. The B-I-B-L-E. Now that's the book for me. I stand upon the word of God. My epistemology. Right? Hey, Bible, yeah. So the Bible is so important for the foundation of our lives. And that's how we should take it seriously. Because as someone once said to me... If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. (laughs) And we have a lot of people telling us how we should or shouldn't live our lives that not only is not in line with Scripture, it's totally out of kelp with Scripture. So we need to to remember the Bible is necessary. It's essential for doctrine. But it's not only essential for doctrine. Paul says it's essential for reproof. Reproof, what's that? The NIV has rebuke. I thought, well, I don't like that word. <laughs> it's convicting. Reproof is when 
you put something to the test. And if it doesn't add up, if it doesn't line up, if it's not what it's supposed to be, it's reproved. It's subjecting what we think, what we say, and what we do in light of the Bible. Right? Have you ever had a thought and you think, why am I thinking like that? And then you read your Bible and it's like, oh, my thinking's stinking. You know, my, my agape is sloppy. It's not, it's not in line with the Bible. I'm being reproved. How, how about this? Have you ever um, said something that you wish you hadn't said? I said something early on in this sermon I wish I hadn't said, but I got my tongue in front of my eye tooth and I couldn't see what I was saying. But anyway, yeah, gosh, how many times have I said something I thought, oh, I wish I could have taken that back because I remember the Bible said, don't talk like that. Don't say those things. I shouldn't think like that. I shouldn't talk like that. Have you ever done anything you knew you shouldn't have done and you did it anyway and yet the Bible comes to mind and now you're convicted? Some of you are good, honest saints. You're shaking your head. Well, I got some good news. I got some bad news. God knows everything about you. That sounds scary, but it's also good because he loves us anyway. Yeah, so the Bible is good not only for teaching us what we should do, what we should think, and what we should say. It's good for showing us when we get, this is for art. Where are you, art? When we are one click off. There you go, back there. Here's one click off. When we get one click off, right, art? The Bible says you need to come back this way. But the Bible doesn't leave it there. Not only is it good for doctrine and reproof, Paul tells us the Bible is good for correction. It's useful for correction. And I love this because when I know what I should know as a, Christ, as a Christian, and I seem to fail a lot at being a Christian, I'm not only reproved, but God, through his word, corrects me. He brings restoration. It's amazing. We all have problems with somebody, don't we? We all have somebody in our life. We all do. What does the Bible tell me to do about that? Okay, I know what I'm supposed to do, and now I'm convicted because I'm not doing it. So how do I get corrected? Well, I start obeying the word of God. And all of a sudden, God in his way of love and grace in his way of restoring us, begins to improve our lives. All of a sudden, we find that, oh, God used that person to change me for the better. Refiner's fire, the crucible, yeah. And so now we find that as we apply ourselves to Scripture, and it's applied to us, our character and conduct becomes different. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that when we really take God at his word, it really is our epistemology, and we really honor it. As God said, I honored my name, Psalm 82, I believe it is. I honored my word above my name. Now, I don't think there's a person here that ever want to take God's name in vain. Hopefully not. Hammer or no hammer. (laughs) 
And yet God says, I've honored my word above my name. I think God's very serious about us being serious about his word. And so it brings correction. It begins to improve our character and conduct. And I love this because Paul says it's also good for instruction. It also trains us how to live life right. How am I to live my life as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a colleague, as a citizen? How am I to live my life um, to enjoy God and to enjoy the life he's given me? Well, as Harry said, here's our instructions before leaving earth. Do you agree with that? Yeah, it's not easy, but that's why the Bible is essential to our Christian faith. I've got one last question, and that is this. Why should we commit ourselves to a biblical worldview? Why should we do this? Paul tells us if we submit ourselves to the principles of God's word, we can be thoroughly equipped. That means completely fit for all that God has for us to do as his people, as Christians and as congregation, as a light in this dark world, that if we would submit ourselves to God's word and make it a priority again, that it will make us fit. And you know what I like about that? Is that what God does when we yield to him? Now, I know some people might think, well, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian here, Stan? I don't know. Maybe I'm a Calvinian. Who knows? I just know that God works with people and God calls us to follow and obey. And by his grace, he makes us fit to do what he's called us to do and to be who we are called to be. In Romans chapter um, 15, verse 4, Paul writes this, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of Scripture, of the Scripture, might have hope. Wow. So God had all of this written so that we today can understand that God wants us to learn to be patient. He's not through with us yet. I know we're all thankful for that. And yet, we can all have the hope that when he's done with us, we're going to be complete. And he does that through his word and by his spirit. So the Bible is really, really important, I think, for us Christians. The last verse I want to read for you is out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to what Paul writes here to the Corinthian church, or not Corinthian, excuse me, Thessalonian church. He writes this, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. That's how powerful the word of God is. It works effectively. 
The writer of Hebrews says it's like this sharp two-edged sword and it cuts right down the middle, exposes everything about us. And yet, in that cutting us in two, God puts it all back together the way it should be in the hands of God. I'd like to give you, as I close now, I'd like to give you an assignment this coming season. I do kind of crazy things sometimes. I don't do it at Mike's store. (laughs) I do it at secular bookstores. I like to go in and hang out in the Bible aisle. You know, like, for instance, I guess I can name names. Books a million. Got a lot of books there. They got a whole long section of Bibles. You ever been there? I hope you went there after you went to Mike's store, right? <laughs> Sometime, grab a cup of coffee and don't say anything. Now, if you see me doing this, don't blow my cover, please. Sometimes just grab a cup of coffee and go, just go stand in the Bible, the aisle where they have all the Bibles. Have you ever walked down there and looked at all the different Bibles? Hundreds of Bibles. you ever notice that? I, I always joke about, you know, they got pink Bibles, blue Bibles. They've got men's Bibles, women's Bibles, children's Bibles. They've got um, construction workers' Bibles. They've got police officer Bible, firefighter Bibles. And, and I always joke about one of these days, I'm gonna, I know I'm going to see it. There's going to be a Bible there, slim for him. Yeah. <laughs> I know it. Because they have exercise Bibles. They've got all kinds of Bibles. But sometimes I'll stand there with my coffee and pretending like I'm looking at Bibles. And I love to listen to people's conversations. Because most people have no idea what they're doing. They don't know anything about these Bibles. They want to buy somebody a gift. Or they want to buy themselves a Bible because they're going to church. And they'll be just confounded. It's like, why are there so many different Bibles? And what's the difference between an NIV and an ESV and a KJV and, and a message and, and a passion? And, and, a, and, you know, and they're confused. And then they'll say... And what's the difference between a chronological study Bible and a uh, handbook Bible? And, uh, you, know, you know, it's amazing. And then they'll call someone who works there to come over and help them. And they'll have somebody come over and say, hey, I'm trying to buy a Bible and I don't know which Bible to get. And usually it's like, I don't know, buy one that you like, you know. Well, what do you know about it? I don't know. I just work here, you know. <laughs> Kind of like me is, why is the Bible called the Bible? I don't know, I just evangelize here. But uh, it's amazing. Sometimes just try it. Just don't tell anybody you're doing it. Just sneak away and go. And ask yourself, if they turned to me and asked, what do you think? Because that will happen, trust me. That will happen. Are you ready for that? Because... I want to encourage them. I don't know who they are. I don't know if they're Christians. I don't know if they're new believers. I don't know. I do know this. When someone asks, what's the best translation? I always tell them, the one that you will read. <laughs> Get in there. I always tell them, are you going? I ask them, are you going to church? Oh, yeah, I go here, there, wherever. I say, well, what Bible does your pastor use? I don't know. Well, before you buy a Bible, go ask your pastor. What Bible he uses? Because you want to get a Bible when you're sitting in church, you can follow along, and then you can start writing down questions. And if you want to ask your pastor, your elders, or, or the deacon, or whoever it is, you can say, hey, I was reading this today along with the study, and, and I didn't quite get it. It's amazing how useful we can be 
to help people to get a hold of a Bible. The other thing is, while you're there at the bookstore, ask yourself, how long are we going to have this wealth of Bibles? Because all it takes is a law passed to determine if something is hate speech. And if you own a bookstore and your suppliers are no longer supplying hate speech because the publishers, which, by the way, you know, publishers are businesses and there's nothing wrong with businesses. But if the government is telling me that I'm going to be fined because I'm propagating hate speech, I probably will think, you know, I make a lot of money here at this publishing company on all kinds of books about all kinds of things. Maybe I'll just avoid the headache and not publish this book of hate. And maybe if I'm a distributor who supplies bookstores, maybe it'd be better to say, you know, I can supply trinkets and jewelry and posters and things like that, but we no longer supply hate speech because the government's cracking down on us and we're being fined. And you don't think it can happen? Have you heard lately about how hateful this book is? Yeah. Could it ever be taken away from you and I? No, we've got the freedom of speech. Really? (laughs) You see what's happening? I say this to close here. We are living in some very interesting times, aren't we? Very interesting times. And of all people, we better get firmly founded on our worldview. Because religion, philosophy, cultural trends are not going to help anybody. Do you know what helps people? What helps people is what God has given us to know him by. What helps people is applying what God has given us by which to live. That's where help comes from. So this year, I'm praying for me, and I'm praying for you, I'm praying for all of us, that we will have a renewed, burning in our bones desire for the word of God. You know, I can tell you right now, people always ask me, hey, Calvary Chapel, I heard you're part of that big movement. What happened? And what did you guys do to get all those thousands of people come You know what we did? Here it is. I'll let you in on a big secret. Thousands of people back then, you know what we did? We came to a little tent or a big tent in this big field, and we brought our King James Bibles, because basically that's all there was available other than the RSV. Brought our King James Bibles, and we sat there and went through the Bible. Did we have any big bands or anything? No. Sometimes Chuck, the pastor, would stand up here, and most of our songs came right out of the Bible. And he would lead us with the sacred harp, as they used to call it, a cappella. And we would, thousands of us, we're just singing songs. And then we would get into the Bible, and we would literally go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, chapter by, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, learning about who God is and his will for our lives. And you know what happened? God honored that. 
And thousands, literally thousands of people, young and old, came to personal faith in Christ. Not because of our programs, not because of our entertainment, not because of our amusements, not because we had smoke machines and flashing lights, nothing like that at all. And now I can say that because I left that world a long time ago, back in the early 80s, when I saw it coming. As the reformers used to say, sola scriptura. It's the scriptures. Because it's here that we learn of God and his will for our lives. So I pray this coming year, we're not going to be so much concerned about, may I say, religious creeds or pious deeds. Those are all important. There's nothing wrong with them unless they're wrong. (laughs) But we can't and will not go wrong with God's word. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the time in which you've brought us here. We know that we are a light in a dark place. We know that before that day comes that Jesus returns, there is going to be chaos. There is going to be wickedness. There's going to be a lot of hurt. And yet we know that you've given us your word to proclaim the hope that we can have in knowing you. And that the only way to know you is through your son, Jesus Christ. And the only way that could happen is by the work of your spirit in our lives and in the lives of others. And so we pray as a little congregation, a little city set on a hill, that we would be that light in a dark place. That when we speak, that when we proclaim, as we share with our neighbors, they would know that we've been with Jesus because we've been in your word. And we pray that you'll bring conviction to our hearts, even as we think of Jeremiah, who you raised up to preach when he finally got tired of the mistreatment. His prayer, his statement was, I'm not going to preach in his name anymore. And then your fire began to burn in his belly. Lord, help us not to be those who lack passion for your, your word or for you. Help us not to be those who have no love for the lost, but help us to be good soldiers. Help us to be good tent makers. Help us to rightly divide your word. Help us to be skilled at those things that you not only have called us to do, but you've promised to equip us so that we can honor you and help others, that we might bless you and bless others. And we thank you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.